Hey, good morning, evening, afternoon, whenever you're listening to this Tuesday edition of our Journey Through Scripture. Hope you had a good weekend, and uh, we're jumping right back into uh, the uh, David's story of becoming king uh, this Last week, we spent a lot of time looking through a lot of the Psalms, and uh, I hope that as you read those, that you kind of got a, a picture of, of the heart of God, and, and a lot of the character of who God is comes out in the Psalms. Well, today we're going to get back into looking at the story of David and what is going on there. Um, we're going to read today First uh, Chronicles chapter 17. Right. And then we're going to be back in 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel chapters 8 through 12 and Psalm 51. So 1 Chronicles chapter 17, 2 Samuel 8 through 12, and Psalm 51. All right, so 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 17, we've, we've already read this account uh, earlier in uh, Samuel, but David has a desire uh, to build the temple. He wants to build a temple to put the ark in. Uh, That represented the presence of God, um, and David wanted to build God a home. Basically, it was an honorable thing to to want. And Nathan, the prophet, uh, David expressed this desire to Nathan, and Nathan said, sounds good to me. Well, then God uh, spoke to Nathan and said, no, that is not my plan. This interesting what, what he says. He says, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent, from one tabernacle to another, wherever I have moved about with all Israel. Uh, uh, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar. Now, I think this is interesting. There's a a good point to be had here because then God goes on to tell Nathan, you're going to tell David that I will allow a temple to be built, but it it will be by David's son, not by him. Um, And, but the point here is important that God doesn't need a house. Why? Because God is not confined to a house. God is not physical as we are physical. See that the culturally the people they it was, it was kind of a, a a little bit of um moving in between the culture then that understood gods as represented by idols um to now we're God is moving the people of Israel to understand, no, God is much bigger than that. He doesn't need a home, right? And so he's never dwelt uh, in a single place. He has always been with Israel. They were the ones who kind of viewed him as isolated to where the Ark of the Covenant was, or that's why they needed to build a home. And God is specifically um, kind of pushing out that idea that he does not need a home. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with building the temple. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, that we shouldn't have churches and buildings and things like that. But the reality is, is that God is everywhere, right? And, and that he is with us everywhere, not just in the temple, not just when we're at church, but he is there with us each and every day, no matter where we are. So he uh, talks to David. David responds. Uh, you know, there's that um, passage that talks about David, had a man after God's own heart. You see glimpses of that all throughout the story of David. Uh, and then we're going to see some 
pretty bad things too. Um, but David's response to this is very mature. Rather than being upset and saying, why can't I, as uh, the greatest king of Israel, be the one to build the uh, uh, the temple, he acknowledges and he respects what the Lord uh, desires, and he begins preparation for the building of the temple so that his sons uh, can do that. So then we get into Second Samuel. Uh, we're going to be through 8 through 12, and this is really important. So um, one of the interesting things and one of the things that I love about Scripture and that to me proves some uh, reliability of Scripture um, you know, if you're if you're kind of looking into apologetics and things like that, is that scripture is brutally honest and it actually focuses on things that most historical accounts didn't focus on. For example, if you're writing about the uh, the reign of King David, you would spend most of your time uh, traditionally uh, in in most uh, uh, histories. They would have focused on all of the accomplishments of David, and they would have gone into in-depth on the battles and and how the battles were won and how it brought glory to David. Um, that is mentioned. I mean, the, the Bible does mention how David is conquers uh, the people and, and um, um, takes possession of the, the kingdom and all of that. But those are very small. They're just kind of snippets in there. It doesn't go into detail at all. What it does go into detail are the failings of David, of how he does things that go completely against the will of God. It shows his flaws, and it chastises him for that. That is not something that is normally seen uh, in ancient history books. They, they focus on the good things, not the bad and the evil things, but the Bible is different. The Bible... <laughs> it. It's true, and it calls it like it is, and it actually focuses uh, on the things that we can learn from um, rather than just trying to make David out to be this perfect uh, king. No, it shows, it shows the flaws and all, and then still calls David a man after God's own heart because God understands, Scripture understands the human sinfulness, that we are all fallen, that we all sin, but yet where is our heart? Does our heart go back to God? Do we seek repentance? Um, or do we continue to go our own way? That's a, it's an important uh, thought that we all need to have. Are we developing a heart for God? So in spite of our failings, in spite of our sinfulness, that we go back to God and we learn from that and we do repent and we change from our ways. All right, so Second Samuel chapter eight goes into these wonderful victories that David has, and uh, by verse fifteen it says, "So David reigned over all of Israel." So we have David now is in full control uh, of Israel. He has uh, defeated just about every uh, enemy at this point. Chapter 9 talks about his kindness. Uh, there's a couple of names that I think you should consider um, for your next child that's going to be mentioned here. The first is Zeba. That's, that's actually one that I could see someone using is Zeba. Zeba was a servant of the house of Saul. And in uh, the first part there of chapter 9, David says, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, what typically would happen is a king would say, Is there anyone from the house of Saul so that I can make sure I kill them so that they are no threat to me? 
That's the normal way of, of doing things. But God, uh, David is doing things differently, right? He, he does have a, a desire to do what is right. And so he wants to make sure that if there's any of Saul's descendants that they are taken care of. There's a servant from the house of Saul named Ziba uh, tells David, yes, uh, Jonathan's son, uh, Mephibosheth. Now that is definitely a name that you should use and put it on your your list uh, of potential names. Mephibosheth, remember we've been introduced to him before. He is lame, he is not able to walk, um, and he is Jonathan's son. So David reaches out to him um, and uh, brings him to the to the capital city, to Jerusalem. Um, And uh, Mephibosheth, it's interesting, says, then he bowed uh, himself and says, what is your your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? So Mephibosheth is probably really worried. He's probably very concerned that David is going to kill him. Um, because again, he's in the the line of of Saul. He would have been in line for the king, um, and so he uses an interesting analogy: a dead dog, as, as such as I, uh, a dog was was not a clean animal, and especially a dead carcass was something that was very unclean and was was uh, was something that you had to to go through rituals to cleanse yourself if you ever came in contact with a dead dog. So he is basically saying, "I am lower." than the most unclean animal, right? because he, he's trying to save his life. Um, and, uh, and David, of course, uh, tells Ziba, his servant, and tells Mephibosheth that they are going to be welcome, uh, that Mephibosheth is there to stay in the, in the uh, household of David, to eat with David. Ziba is given, uh, uh, and his household are also um, given a place to, to live and taken well, uh, well taken care of. So then we get to uh, chapter uh, 10. You have uh, David um, trying to to be nice, if you will, with uh, uh, some of the enemies. Um, it's the king of Ammon dies, and his son takes control. So David sends people to be nice um, and and say, hey, let's keep, keep things uh, together. This is just typical politics, kingdom politics that you see. The advisors of the new king of uh, Ammon uh, say, uh, these guys are probably coming to spy on you so that David can overtake you. So rather than listening to the to the spies and seeing if there can be a peace made, uh, this king uh, takes the aggression and he uh, humiliates the servants of of King David. It's interesting how he does it. it says, therefore, uh, Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. <laughs> so just close your eyes for a minute. Picture that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of funny, very humiliating. Obviously, this was a, a cultural slap in the face. Uh, this was definitely designed to uh, humiliate and uh, denigrate. Uh, not only um, these messengers, but David himself. So David responds by sending Joab and all the army of his mighty men. (laughs) And so it does not work out for the king of Ammon. Um, Then we get to chapter 11. Chapters 11 and 12 are very important. Um, They are the story of David and Bathsheba. so we've just had numerous years of battles of successes of David summed up in like 
uh, a chapter and a half. Um, and now we're going, and we have very little details of any of that. Um, well, now we have the details of, of David uh, and Bathsheba, and the Bible goes into depth to explain how horrible this was. Um, you know, there's so many things. I just encourage you to read, uh, especially chapter 11. Um, but so David sends Joab and the people out to take care of what we just talked about, take care of uh, Ammon. And David should have done that himself. But he stays. He's said, you know, he's gotten things in control. He's kind of getting fat and happy. And he's like, no, I'll just let let uh, Joab and my army handle that. I I, I deserve to be king. Um, so I'll just stay here in the comforts of the palace. And while he is there, um, he goes up on the roof and he's looking out. I'm sure the palace roof is taller than others. Um, one of the places that there would be, you could uh, bathe, is on the top of the roof. And there is a beautiful woman who is bathing. Uh, David sees her. And, and rather than looking away, he realizes, hey, I'm king. Uh, she's part of the kingdom. Um, bring her on up. Right, so he does. He sleeps with Bathsheba, and then, of course, the news comes back that Bathsheba is pregnant, um, and uh, David finds out uh, who the husband is—that it is Uriah, um, who is one of his mighty men, right? One of the men that he had sent out to uh, uh, to take care of the king of Ammon, and and uh, David is like, "Oh, this is horrible. I'm going to try to make this right. I don't want this to get out." So he brings Uriah back. Uh, from the from the battle lines, uh, kind of talks to Uriah. Give, hey, give me an update. He's trying to butter him up. He expects that Uriah would go back to Bathsheba, um, his wife, and spend the night there, and everything would be fine, right? Well, Uriah doesn't do that. Um, he is going to show solidarity with his men. Which, by the way, I mean, I appreciate Uriah and everything, but come on, really, <laughs> go go sleep with your wife. That that's beside the point, <laughs> but Uriah is is a a man of conviction, right? And so he doesn't. And then he so David is like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this guy? Uh, maybe I can get him drunk, and then he'll go back and sleep with his wife. And uh, and, and he gets drunk, but Uriah still doesn't go back and sleep with Bathsheba. You you have to. Uh, feel that David is like, what in the world do I have to do to get you to go sleep with your beautiful wife? This is the strangest problem I've ever had, right? <laughs> that I can't get a man to sleep with a beautiful woman. Right? And, and so David is desperate and he decides, okay, the I, I know how to take care of this. I can make sure that he gets put on the front lines. So Uriah actually carries the message of his own death to Joab. It's just, it's just such such a tragic story and and a sad story, and so Joab puts Uriah on the front lines. Uriah does, is killed. Um, Joab sends word back to David uh, of the losses that they took, and he subtly reminds, and not so subtly says, uh, and and also remind the king that Uriah is dead. And so David responds back. Um, David says, uh, do not let the, to Joab through the messenger, do not let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. And so David, David is trying to play this off as 
hey, I didn't really do anything. The, man, the guy, he, he was in battle. The sword will take out whoever it decides to take out, right? Well, no, no, you, you intended this to happen, and you intentionally put him in a place where he would be killed. And the very last uh, verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, which meant all of it, right? That this displeased the Lord. And so then we have chapter 12 and Nathan, the prophet comes in and he starts telling David a story. And this, this obviously there's some divine, um, you know, uh, a divine intervention here that God reveals to Nathan what has happened. Um, that's that's kind of the impression we get. We don't don't necessarily know that this is widespread. In fact, uh, God says, "What you did in secret, I'm going to make known to everyone." Um, you know the the ramifications of it. But uh, so God reveals this to Nathan, and Nathan goes to David. And this is a would be a terrifying thing to go and call out the king again, culturally speaking. That didn't happen. Kings didn't have people calling them out. Um, but David is listening to the prophet. Uh, Nathan gives a, a, a an analogy um, of a rich man and a poor man. Uh, the poor man has one lamb and has a very close relationship with that lamb and is, is like his daughter. Uh, and then a, a guest comes to the rich man's house, and he doesn't want to give one of his many sheep um, um, to, uh, to take care of the the traveler. So he takes the single sheep of the poor man. And David is just uh, enraged. And and he said, uh, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, right? So he is upset. He sees the injustice there, right? How, how easy <laughs> it is for us to see the injustice within others, and be completely blinded to ourself. And that's whenever Nathan responds with just such a powerful moment, says, you are the man. And then goes into God's uh, punishment, how, how God is going to, that there's going to be major consequences of this, that David's household is going to be in turmoil, right? Goes through all of that. And then David has an opportunity to respond. And this is this is very important because this does not happen in our society today. When we're called out for our misdeeds, for our mistakes, for our doing wrong, the first response of most people today is to defend ourselves, to rationalize, to say no, to deflect blame. No, it was Bathsheba. She just did it. Oh, no, Uriah just doesn't care about his wife. You know, um, I, what are you talking about? I, I didn't uh, expect uh, Uriah to die. He's just a, a fighter. That's just what happens, right? That would have, that's the way that most people would respond. But David responded, said, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, he recognized it, and he, he accepted all of the consequences um, that, the, that God was going to, to give. That brings us to, to Psalm 51. We're, we'll finish up chapter 12 here in just a moment, but I encourage you to read Psalm 51. This psalm is very specific to this, uh, this incident. And so be thinking about this as you read these words that David uh, wrote. He says, For I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. 
right? He's, he's overwhelmed with this. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And he recognizes how much he has messed up, and he's pleading with God to restore that joy within him because he, he's broken, and he, he is going to the right place. Rather than becoming angry and bitter and saying that it wasn't my fault, no, he is being completely honest with God and opening up his heart to him. So then the, the second half of uh, chapter 12, um, the, uh, David's the child that uh, Bathsheba was pregnant um, dies uh, or becomes is born and is, is very sick, and it does not look like is going to make it, which that was one of the punishments of God. We don't fully understand that. Um, you know, the, was this attributed to, to God as the, the child was not doing well? Um, no, th- this is a consequence. It's a consequence of the sinful actions. And it's interesting what David does. Whenever the, the child is alive, fighting for his life, David is mourning and weeping uh, and praying, praying for God to deliver the child, all of these, these things. And, the, and his, when the child dies, his servants are very nervous. They're afraid that this may put, push David over the edge whenever he finds out that his child is, is dead. But David actually doesn't. Whenever he, he finds that out, he begins to pull himself back together. And so they asked him, they said, uh, man, you fasted and wept while the child was alive, but now that the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said this, he says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So what David is saying is he, David knew what the consequences of his sin were going to be, but that didn't mean that he wasn't going to pray to God and ask God to, to change his mind, to ask God to perform a miracle, to save the life of his child. But then whenever that didn't happen, David didn't miss a beat uh, in deciding he's going to blame God, that he's going to, to turn his back on God. He's going to say, no, God chose not to answer my prayer that way. And so now I will continue on and I I will grieve, but I will be moving forward. I think that's an important principle for us to have. And it's one that you need to have before you enter into a time of grief and mourning. Um, But it it has become popular to blame God when he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want him to. And that does not mean that God is not present with us. And and sometimes we have to choose to continue to move forward rather than get stuck into blaming God because he didn't answer a prayer the way that we desired for him to. All right, we're going to stop there. On Thursday, encourage you to read 2 Samuel 13 through 16 and Psalm 3 and Psalm 7. So 13 through 16, Psalm 3 and 7. We are going to look even deeper at the dysfunction of David's family, the result of David's sinfulness. But yet, David still had a heart, was a man after God's own heart. All right, hope today you have a good Wednesday, and we'll see you back on Thursday.